1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They are the mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And now in German. Bleibt auf dem Weg der Liebe, strebt nach den Geistesgaben, vor allem aber danach prophetisch zu reden. Wer in Zungen redet, spricht nicht zu Menschen, sondern zu Gott, denn niemand versteht ihn. Er redet im Geist von Geheimnissen. Wer dagegen prophetisch redet, spricht zu Menschen. Er erbaut, ermutigt, tröstet. Wer in Zungen redet, baut sich selbst auf. Wer aber prophetisch redet, baut die Gemeinde auf. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Megumi uh, temporarily joined our church staff in New York City at the previous church community that I led under the job title Interim Children's Ministry Coordinator, which is church plant speak for we don't have enough money to pay anyone for this, but we do need someone to buy us some time. Would you do it? Uh, Six months in, I offered her a permanent position. She responded, I'd really like to think it over. Later, she told me uh, she didn't know how to let me down gently in the moment and needed some time to reflect on the phrasing of that, but that was entirely her plan. Uh, she had a full-time gig in the nonprofit world and a clear pathway toward upward mobility. And as she prayed, though, she began to feel this pull from God to leave all of that to be a part-time children's ministry coordinator at a church plant in Brooklyn, New York. Now, a decent full-time salary in New York will typically get you like a shared apartment with a roommate and seven cats. A, a part-time position at a church plant that survives entirely on local donations is insane. But Meg couldn't shake the sense that God was saying, this is where I'm leading you. Come and follow me and I'll take care of the rest. Fast forward a couple weeks, we're at this prayer meeting at our church, a friend of mine is in from out of town who Megumi had never met, has no idea of her situation. During this prayer meeting he says, excuse me, you there, ma'am, I have a picture of an abacus. Now in case you don't know what this is, this is an abacus, it's that thing that kids play with in doctor's office waiting rooms, which is a super spreader, just so you know, <laughs> if you haven't thought about that. So, it says, I have this picture of an abacus, but all the scales are moved to one side. And I just have this sense that, uh, and I think it might be from God, that you're contemplating a decision and every bit of human wisdom tells you to go with the one that is clearly safer in value. But God is saying, go for the one with all of the risk, the empty side of the equation. That's where I'm leading you. Follow me and I'll take care of the rest. Does that make sense? Tears begin streaming down her face, and at that moment, I slide the job description in front of her again. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that last bit. So how did Megumi end up discipling a whole bunch of kids in Brooklyn? Well, by scripture, she could explain to you all of her beliefs, but she cannot tell her story without the active speaking voice of God today through one believer to another. In other words, the foundation of her life is biblical truth, but the shape of her life is prophecy. A God who is living and active and present, not just in history, but living and active and present in every way that he has been in history among us right now. So we're in a teaching series around here titled Hearing God, Listening to the Still Small Voice of the Holy Spirit. God speaks to us through Jesus, the living word, through scripture, the written word, and today we come to through us in the gift of prophecy. And because prophecy is not a word we use a whole lot these days, I just want to establish some common ground as we begin. First, when I say the word prophecy, what I mean is to hear and speak God's voice on behalf of an individual or group. And before we go any further, I want to readily acknowledge that when you drop the P word in a 21st century American church, the room will immediately splinter into three groups. Some of you here have a longing for the gift of prophecy, and so you're like, all right, let's get weird. 
But it's quite possible uh, to have a really good hunger to know God in every way that he's knowable, but to lack a biblical foundation for that hunger to be built on. And so if that's you today, I wanna offer you a biblical foundation to take the hunger that you've already got and place it on so that it can grow healthily. Others of you will hear a word like prophecy and it'll immediately make you more concerned than it does excited. And that could be because of unfamiliarity. Like you're just shaped and steeped in a church tradition that more or less brushed over topics like prophecy and ignored passages like the one we just read as our teaching text today. Or it might be because of uh, familiarity. Like maybe you had a bad experience and you have been in a manipulative or abusive prophetic environment in the past. And so anything that hints at that experience is dangerous to you more than it's an invitation. And if that's you, then I want to explain the incredible gift that God has given to us through the prophetic and why we should long for it rather than fear it in spite of what might have been your experience or lack of experience to this point. And then finally, some of you are thinking, I've got no idea what you're talking about, man. It sounds like you think you're stepping onto some controversial ground, and I'm just thinking this is a pretty lengthy intro. And if, if that's you, then... That's probably the perfect starting place. So today I want to address the theme of prophecy through these three lenses, biblically, communally, and personally, in that order. So first, prophecy biblically. There is no era of biblical history without the prophetic. The Bible, stripped of prophecy, is a story that just cannot be told. Uh, Let's start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now in Hebrew, which is the original language of Genesis, it reads, and the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. Ruach is a Hebrew word that can be translated into English as either spirit or breath. The spirit of God was hovering or the Ruach of God was hovering. Maybe said with a little bit of biblical imagination, God was breathing on the unformed chaos. And what happens when God's breath, his spirit, touches unformed substance? Creation. God speaks creation into being. Stars, land, sea, all of it. God the Father creates through the Holy Spirit. Uh, When God speaks, when his breath or his spirit goes out, creation happens. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 2. I'll pick up in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So last of all, God creates people and something unique happens. God puts his breath uh, into them, into the ones that image him, and that sets people apart from every other created thing. Now the question is why? Why would God give us his breath or his spirit to go on creating? to do exactly what we've seen him doing. The first biblical command is what? Be fruitful and multiply, create, rule over creation, work these raw materials into an ecosystem, create. And then of course comes that whole bit about the forbidden fruit, a tragic scene that we typically sum up under the title the fall. Human beings were always meant to be filled with God's spirit, sin stole that breath from our lungs. And that brings us to the Old Testament. So what's God's strategy for redemption? Well, he just keeps on speaking. God recreates in the exact same way that he created at first, through his breath, his spirit. Let's look at Numbers chapter 11. Then the word of of the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied but did not do so again. So when the Spirit of God falls in a cloud on Moses, what always happens? God speaks. God speaks to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then in response, Moses speaks the words of God to the people. He prophesies. Prophecy, remember, is to hear and speak God's voice on behalf of an individual or group. In this instance, some of the same Spirit was given to 70 others And what immediately followed? Prophecy. They all began to prophesy. They all began to to hear and speak the words of God to one another. But they did not do so again. It's temporary. 
It's not an ongoing gift. It's a divine moment. And Moses is the beginning of a pattern where throughout the Old Testament, God selects certain people and communicates with them directly. Those people then share the private whispers of God publicly. These people are called prophets, but they're the exception, not the rule. So the good news is that God keeps on speaking. The bad news is that prophecy is not yet common to everyone in all the same ways. But there is this telling moment right at the end of Numbers chapter 11, a desire within Moses that points forward to what's coming in the story. Numbers eleven twenty nine, Moses says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, Moses realizes in this moment that his experience of God's nearness is the exception, not the rule that the very best of what he's experiencing with God is not yet common to all people in all the same ways. And Moses' longing points ahead to that, to the same spirit speaking prophetically to and through everyone in the community. This brings us to Jesus, who then became the word of God, uh, the spoken word of God in human form. Jesus is a walking, talking, living, breathing prophecy. And after his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples in John chapter 20, where we read, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's my breath for your lungs, my ruach, my spirit. If you keep on turning right in your Bibles, you eventually come to the book of Acts, where the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given just as Jesus promised. And what immediately happens in Acts chapter two? When the Holy Spirit is given to the people, they all start speaking the words of God. All of God's people start acting like prophets just like Moses foretold and desired. Peter then stands up to explain what's going on to everyone watching, and he says, what you're seeing right now is exactly what the prophet Joel said would happen. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You see, God's promise in the Old Testament was there's a day coming when my spirit, my ruach, my breath won't just be for cameo appearances for a special few, but will be the common experience of all of my people just as it was always meant to be. And that promise is for children and seniors. It's for men and women, for the rich and the poor, all people, all who will receive me, get my voice. And what was sensational on the day of Pentecost then becomes normal as the church matures. Joel's prophecy in Acts becomes Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Paul goes on to write in this chapter, I would like all of you to prophesy. It's an identical echo from Moses all the way back in Numbers 11. All of you? Yes, because all of you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. All of you now carry permanently what the prophets of old had at particular times for particular purposes. That's why the gift is called prophecy in the New Testament. It is the ordinary practice of what was extraordinary before Jesus breathed his spirit into us. That's the biblical story. And prophecy is not an optional subpoint. It's at the very heart of the story. John, Peter, Paul, Mary, Nympha, Timothy, Priscilla, Apollos, all of them cannot explain their beliefs apart from scripture and cannot tell you their stories apart from prophecy. The, foundations of their, the foundation of their lives is God's written word, but the shape of their lives is God's spoken word. And if the Bible is your guidebook for relationship to God, the question isn't, does God speak to me? He does. The question is, am I listening? Or do I know how to listen? So that's prophecy biblically, and all that I've just said is generally agreed upon across church history. However, there are certain denominations or traditions that would say, yes, that is absolutely the biblical story, 
But that part of the biblical story doesn't apply to us today. Cessationists believe that the miraculous gifts like prophecy that we read about throughout the New Testament apostolic era have ceased, that God gave us his spirit as an extra boost for the early church, but then when the apostolic generation died out, the spirit stopped speaking prophetically. So let's slow our roll here for just a moment. Obviously, the aim of this teaching is as a practical guide to prophecy, not as a defense against its opponents, but as a very brief aside, because some of you have heard or will hear this teaching, I want to respond to it pastorally. I grew up in cessationist churches, uh, in a cessationist tradition. I, I was educated at a cessationist biblical institution, and I believe that the logic that God uh, gave the Holy Spirit as a power surge to the New Testament church that we no longer need is so, so flawed. And there's a few reasons for that. I'll give you an experiential, a philosophical, and a biblical reason. So let's start with the weakest one, the experiential. If I were to say that God no longer speaks today as he spoke on the pages of the New Testament, I would have to deny a ton of my own personal experience. I can tell you everything that I believe through the story of scripture, but I cannot tell you the story of my life with Jesus without the prophetic. So to deny the prophetic would be to deny a whole bunch of my own experience with God. Then there's a, a philosophical reason. God's entire motive is relationship. The biblical drama is all aimed at relationship, at unity between God and people and between people and people. And if I told my wife, Kirsten, look, here's the deal. I'm never gonna speak directly to you again. However, I've collected a lot of information about myself in a leather-bound book that I'd like you to read daily between now and the time when you die so that you can remain close to me. I don't think she or I would think that that was a particularly strong arrangement for unity of relationship. A relationship does not work in any context that we interact with without direct communication. God is constantly speaking in the biblical story. It makes no sense that a God so insistent on speech would decide somewhere in early church history, whew, what a wild ride. Sermons, mediocre songwriting, and typically awkward small groups should take it from here, right? <laughs> Not to mention the fact that there are two generations after the apostles covered in the book of Acts alone, where prophecy continues to function commonly in the church. If God gave us the gifts of the Spirit as a holy boost to one generation, doesn't it seem strange that their grandkids are still operating in those very gifts? And then finally, a biblical reason. 1 Corinthians 13 is the key passage for the cessationist argument. It's not the only relevant passage, but it is the key. Let's read it together. <clears throat> Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean let's actually read it together. <laughs> Though, I gotta be honest, this is kind of a moment for me, because when I, when I first arrived, you guys were very cerebral, this is the first time I've ever had to tone you down. <laughs> Let me read it, follow along <laughs> silently. <laughs> Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Let's be honest, that does seem pretty straightforward. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Prophecy will one day cease. That is the direct and clear biblical teaching. When? When completeness comes. So the question is, what is completeness and when does it come? Some cessationists will emphasize the passing of the apostolic generation as completeness, like Peter, James, John, that whole crew, which I've already responded to. Others will emphasize completeness as the close of the biblical canon, which was officially decided upon in the fourth century, to which I would say, really? Like, the day the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called completeness, was a successful council meeting to determine which scrolls made it past the final edit? 
Now keep reading in the same passage. For now we see only as in a reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Completeness comes when we see him face to face. When Christ returns as king. When will prophecy cease? When we're face to face with Jesus. When we no longer need the prophetic to know his character because we're, we're swimming in his character. We're not there yet. So we're still in a time of prophecy. Now, of course, there are faithful, wise, committed followers of Jesus in the cessationist camp. And the last thing I would ever want to do is paint a caricature of a brother or sister who I'm gonna spend eternity with. I'm speaking directly to you about this in an effort to serve, to cut a clear path for you, Bridgetown Church, to know the gift of the prophetic and the character of God that is given through the prophetic. And in my honest and humble opinion, a theology that says God does not speak prophetically through his spirit anymore is a belief constructed not from the biblical story, but through a lack of experience. I've never experienced it, so God must not be into it anymore. But a gap between biblical teaching and my experience is not a reason for dismissal, it is an invitation further in. It is a gap that God longs to close. So that's prophecy biblically. Now let's move to prophecy communally. 1 Corinthians 14, which is our teaching text, is the biblical manifesto on the role of prophecy in the local church. And I wanna draw out the principles here in just four words. Ordinary, intimacy, way, and Jesus. Those are the four words to remember from this passage. First, Prophecy is the ordinary experience of church life. Uh, here we have an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to how to use the gift of prophecy when the church gathers together. So the assumption behind the writing of this chapter is that when God's people gather, God is speaking through some to others. In fact, the New Testament church receives written instruction directly related to prophecy in the letters of Romans, Corinthians, uh, Thessalonians, and Timothy, and in the epistles of Peter, Jude, and Revelation. So it is the clear biblical expectation. Dallas Willard, who is as widely respected across er, traditions as anyone in the modern church today, writes this. If we look at the advice on how to, the meetings of the church were supposed to proceed as given in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that they assumed that numerous people in the congregation were going to have some kind of communications from God which they would be sharing with others in the group. In other words, if it's the church you're in, expect prophecy. It was my first Sunday at uh, what was my first and only to this point sabbatical that I've had in my life. I had said goodbye to the church that I had planted and led in Brooklyn and was yet to say hello to this church that I'd committed to in Portland and the people that were in it. And I was in Hawaii on the island of Oahu getting some rest that I probably didn't deserve but was happy to receive in between. And I was an emotional wreck from walking through all those goodbyes and living in between goodbyes and hellos. And I could not stop the wheels turning in my head from all that had been racing for the last year. I couldn't stop rethinking conversations I had had that I wish I had done slightly differently or slightly better. I couldn't stop writing sermons that I had nowhere to preach and no one to preach them to. It was time to rest and I knew how to slow down my body but my mind was a different story. So that first Sunday morning before we walked to this uh, church that's meeting in this sweaty Oahu gymnasium just down the street from the Airbnb that we were staying in, I prayed this really simple prayer, God help, I'm a wreck, I need to hear your voice, help. So I go to this church and I don't remember anything about the music or the preaching, but I do remember this, that when the pastor got up to give the benediction, this guy walked up with him who wasn't on staff at the church, just a lay person at the church named Jordan, and he walks up and he says, yeah, I know this might be strange, but you, and he points directly at me, picks me out of the room. So I saw you when you walked in with your family, and through this picture, I just felt God say, 
I've brought this man here to rest, but he doesn't know how to rest. I want to show him. If that resonates with you, I'd love to pray with you after the service. What is that? It's just another Sunday, right? That's the normal experience of church life. Secondly, prophecy invites intimacy. Can you just humor me for one second with an exercise? Everyone just close your eyes for just a moment. Okay, now, with your eyes closed, I want you to try to identify the voice that you're hearing. Whose voice are you hearing right now? Open your eyes. It was mine, right? (laughs) It was my voice? How did you know that? Your eyes were closed. You could not see my mouth moving. How did you know that? You know what my voice sounds like. Now, for the vast majority of you, you've been following Jesus a lot longer than you've been listening to me teach. So if you know my voice, you should certainly know the voice of the good shepherd. I mean, Jesus himself said in John 10, his voice follow him, or his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I said before, the question isn't, is God speaking? Is it, am I listening? And that's true. But of course, for anyone who's ever tried to hear God, it's not quite that simple, is it? Because experientially, God makes himself available, but not obvious. And so hearing his voice takes some practice. It takes this uncomfortable risking that we call obedience. How do we learn to hear the shepherd's voice? We try our best to follow him. We ask God to speak to us and then we walk obediently only half sure at best that it's actually God that we're hearing. And that means that mistakes will be made. Simon, a really close friend of mine, one close enough and that I respect enough that I named my middle son after him. He was on the Metro North train uh, in New York City a few years ago. That's the uh, New England equivalent to the Amtrak. And it's a train that takes you out of the city into the Hudson Valley towns up the river. And that means that it's long train rides. So he sits down on the train and the woman sitting right across from him, he immediately hears God speak and thinks that he has a prophetic word for her related to the industry that she works in. And so he makes a plan. I'll wait until we're almost there and then I'll share the word with her because this is a two hour train ride and things might get weird if I just go there immediately. But he just can't shake this prompting that God is saying, this is what I'm speaking, I want you to share it. This is what I'm speaking, I want you to share it. And so he leans across, he says, ma'am, I know this might sound weird, but I think that God is speaking to me on your behalf. Do you mind if I share this with you? He shares the word and he says, does that resonate at all? And she says, no. I don't even work in that industry. Okay, it's wonderful to meet you. (laughs) That is what it's like to learn to hear the shepherd's voice. The only way is by risk and obedience. There is no formula here. There's only familiarity. We learn his voice by risk, so we've gotta be willing to get it wrong if we are ever going to get it right. And as you take risks on the voice of God, something amazing happens. His voice becomes more familiar and more frequent. But on the flip side, if you're not open to appearing foolish from time to time, you're gonna have a really hard time following Jesus and knowing the shepherd's voice. In the Bible, God occasionally speaks obviously, uh, like, this is my son, echoing over Jesus' baptism. He occasionally speaks obviously, but most often, God speaks in a whisper to individuals. That is God's preferred method of communication. Why? Intimacy. God wants us to lean in close for us to know him, not just in the booming, mighty, mighty exceptional interruption to our lives, but in the ordinary coming and going of our lives. Prophecy is not God's invitation for you to become a world-traveling seer who wears exclusively hemp. Prophecy is an invitation to come further into the intimacy with God that you're already experiencing, to lean in a little bit closer and risk a little bit more freely because you trust the shepherd and it's God you take seriously, not yourself. Third, prophecy should be weighed. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is said. 
Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians, we're told to test all prophecies, keeping what's good, throwing out the bad. Essentially, chew the meat and spit out the bones when it comes to the prophetic gift. So for the recipient, prophecy should be received freely, but it should be weighed carefully. And that means a discerning ear is complementary to a prophetic voice. Weigh the word that you receive against scripture, Jesus, and trust, if you're looking for a filter. Like scripture, does this word that I'm receiving align with the Bible? Jesus, does it align with the character of Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus? And then third, trust, do I trust the character of the prophetic voice? Because the New Testament has a lot of warnings about watching out for false prophets. A good life bears good fruit. So does this prophetic word emerge from a fruitful, trustworthy character? You see, the blind spot in most fear of the prophetic gift is that everyone wants to talk about the dangers of the prophetic voice. Right? What are we going to do about uh, manipulative uses of prophecy or the abuse of prophecy in the church? I don't know what you're going to do. I know for sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach the practice of weighing prophecy, just as the scripture teaches. What scripture never instructs is fear or silencing of the gift of prophecy because it will be abused by some. Scripture teaches prophecy surrenders to love. That's for the speaker. And we honor the gift by weighing the word. That's for the hearer. And then finally, prophecy is about Jesus. That's what Jesus said himself. That's what he was getting at on the final night of his life. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. David Fretch writes, the primary role of the prophetic anointing is to reveal God to the human heart. See, teaching is, a, uh, is God using a human voice to tell people about his character. That's what's happening right now. Prophecy is God using a human voice to show people his character. It's one thing to be told God loves you. Jesus did that. The Holy Spirit, though, through prophecy, pushes the teachings of Jesus from the head where they can be remembered down into the heart where they can heal and become a new foundation that we live from. Romans chapter five, God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes biblical rumors and then makes them real to us. Jesus made us sons and daughters of God our Father. That is an unchangeable fact based on his grace and not your performance. But the experience of that fact, somehow moving that from doctrine I recite to the emotional floor that I live from tomorrow morning, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The scripture teaches that God is love. The Spirit makes that real to me. The scriptures teach that God is running out to meet me, to clothe me with royal robes, to kill the fattened calf and to welcome me home. The spirit makes that real to me. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for me. The spirit makes that real to me. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far he has removed my transgressions from me, but the spirit makes that real to me. You see, what I'm trying to tell you is that all prophecy directs us toward Jesus. Old Testament prophecy leads up to Jesus. New Testament prophecy points back to Jesus. Prophecy personally reveals God in a way that plunges all that Jesus taught from the intellect where it can be remembered to the heart where it can be lived from. I was helping out at this church retreat with a friend. And it's the final morning of the retreat, like all the big moments are over and we're doing that kind of wrap-up session before everyone rolls out. And my friend stands up at the close of that final gathering and says, hey, I've got this sense that I think might be from the Lord, that there's someone in this room and you have a suicide note on your desk at home that you've already written and you came on this church retreat as a last ditch effort to hear from God. You haven't heard from God, you're leaving disappointed and you're planning on taking your life this very night. If that's you, I just want to invite you to raise your hand because you're in a community that believes that God is speaking to you now and that life is worth living. And this guy raises his hand. Had a suicide note on his desk at home. Had come on that retreat as a last ditch effort. Was leaving disappointed and planned to take his life that very evening. Today, that young man is alive and in a community that is cheering him on why? Because someone took a risk 
on something they were only half sure was God. He had been told again and again and again, God loves you, your life is worth living. And it is one thing to be told that it is comforting, but it is quite another to discover that God has wept beside you while you crafted a note explaining why life wasn't worth living. To be told in the most direct way possible that God really has numbered your days and they're not up yet and this is not the end of your story. That pushes the idea of the biblical story from the head right down into the heart where it can unravel you and you can begin to be recreated from. That is the power of prophecy. The love of Jesus goes from a general idea to a personal reality. How we doing? You guys tracking? All right, one more bit. Prophecy personally. So if I wanna grow in the prophetic, to experience God more and to become like a megaphone that he can speak to others through, where do I start? Four words again, four more words, okay? Desire, ask, encourage, guard. Let me just give you some really practical places to begin and to grow in this gift. First, desire. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. I don't know about you, but when I eagerly desire something, I think of it constantly. I look for every sign of its arrival and I delight even in the smallest taste of it. Like every time around this time of year, I'm eagerly desiring the springtime at the close of the winter, right? And so that means I'm thinking of it constantly. I am actively planning all the things I'm going to do when there's a nice day outside. I am looking for every bud on every tree that it might be arriving sometime soon. And I'm treating a 60 degree day like it's 85. <laughs> the English eagerly is the Greek zeloo, which literally means set one's heart on, be deeply committed to something. And it's a term Paul uses not only here in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, but three separate times in this letter to describe what the posture of the believer should be to the gifts of the Spirit. Once in 1 Corinthians 12, and then twice in chapter 14. Some people relate to God's voice passively, right? Great, if God wants to speak to me prophetically or through me, I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Behind that posture is often a fear of manufacturing experience that's something less than authentic. And I get that 100%. The last thing I want is to play psychological tricks on myself or to drum up something and attribute it to God. But to relate to God's voice passively is also to completely ignore the straightforward teaching of scripture. Eagerly desire. Think constantly about God's small whisper. Look for every inkling of its arriving. Delight in even the smallest taste of it as you inch a little bit closer. We in today's church eagerly desire great teaching. And look, I'm all for that. I love preaching. I've got some favorite preachers out there. But nowhere in scripture do we read eagerly desire the gift of teaching. The modern obsession with teaching is based on the tragic misconception that my words, meaning Tyler's words, are the most important ones that are going to be spoken in our worship gathering today. And God does not see it that way. God eagerly desires to pass redemption through one ordinary human vessel to another, so we should eagerly desire to hear his voice. God does not want a team with a few star players. He wants everyone to play. And if we really believed that, we'd eagerly desire prophecy. If we really grasp that God is generous and abundant and tenacious in his pursuit of people, but he's equally stubborn and insistent on his plan to pass redemption through ordinary human vessels, then we'd probably be more likely to say, God, are you speaking to someone else through me today? And as we respond, might there be something that you want to say to a brother or sister through my stumbling, fumbling risk? Secondly, ask, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So the gifts of the Spirit are not techniques or methods. They're gifts. And a gift is not something that you master, something you receive. So do you want an increase in the gift of prophecy? Then ask for it. I mean, like, pray and tell God that you want it. But don't just ask. Ask specifically. 
Meaning tell God not only what you want, but why and how. Why do you want an increase in the gift of prophecy? How will you use it if and when he gives you that increase? You see, when we ask specifically our eager desire, it gets refined by the way of love. Our motives get picked apart as we articulate ourselves more specifically to God. Our ego gets weeded out of the desire so that he can entrust the vessel that he pours the gift into. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Prophecy is a gift for the building up of the church because prophecy surrenders to love. Prophecy is dangerous when it's done by any motive lesser than selfless love. When it's about your spiritual expression, when it's a way for you to say what you really think behind the guise of God's voice, when it's about making the church into your spiritual playground, it's dangerous. So ask, and ask specifically so that God can refine your desires by his love and then entrust powerful gifts to trustworthy vessels. Third, encourage. Prophecy is given to the church for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. Prophecy and encouragement are very closely related in the New Testament story. Encouragement is prophecy by what you can see. Prophecy is encouragement by what only God can see. So if you want to grow in prophecy, start with your eyes open. Uh, What have you admired in someone else but have never actually told them face to face? Tell them. Encourage them. Or what encouraging thought has passed through your mind, but it's actually never made its way to your lips? Say it out loud. If you're desiring prophecy, make a commitment to become a person of encouragement, and you're on your way. And then on the flip side, guard your mouth. James chapter 3. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? If you want God to use your mouth for the building of his kingdom, then guard your mouth from destruction. Like, do you curse casually? Do you crudely joke when it gets a rise out of someone else? Do you gossip under the guise of venting or processing? If you want God to use your voice to build someone up, then do not use the same voice to chip away at others. Prophecy is not ignorance to another person's faults, but neither is prophecy aimed at correcting another person's faults. The aim of the prophetic is not the correcting of the false self. It is the blessing and wooing of the true self. It is the drawing out of the perfect child of God, already placed within the recipient to the surface. So if you want God to use your mouth for blessing, then make it your ambition to eliminate cursing. Make your mouth a spring of pure water to borrow an image from James. So because prophecy is a communal gift, the way that we practice it is not individually, but communally. So as our practice this week in our Bridgetown communities, we're going to put into practice prophetic listening and prophetic speaking. And in addition to that, as Gerald mentioned before, tomorrow night we're hosting a prophetic prayer training. Uh, He said that we host these three times a year, and that's absolutely true, but we host one directly about prophetic prayer one time a year. So I would just humbly say, so far I've covered a whole lot of the what and why of prophecy, but hopefully you've still got a thousand questions related to how, right? Well, how do I hear God's voice? And how do I know it's God, not just my imagination? And how do I share a prophetic word? And when am I supposed to keep it to myself? And how do I receive a prophetic word from someone else? How? That's what tomorrow night is all about, the how and the practice of this gift. Uh, So this prophetic prayer training is space to worship Jesus, to receive some super practical and brief teaching on prophecy, and then to practice it in an environment where it's okay to completely whiff, and it's going to be just fine. We make space to intentionally practice because we cannot grow as a community apart from practice. So if you're eager, tomorrow night's for you. If you're nervous, it's for you. If you're terrified, it's for you. If you're skeptical, it's for you. If you're experienced, it's for you. If you're a total rookie, it's for you. Whoever you are, we are creating space to have common ground to grow together. And it would be much easier to chill at home and then to hear the stories of others later. It would be much easier, but it would not be better. So I hope you'll take the risk of showing up tomorrow night at 6.30 in this room. So I want to land where we started, back at that community that I led in New York. 
My friend Pete, who you guys know well at this point, Pete Hughes, had come from London to preach in Brooklyn a few years back. And at the end of his teaching, he closed in a prayer. And he said, you know, I've just got this nagging thought. And it just might be God, so I'm going to go for it, that there's someone in this room that's very self-conscious about their teeth And it affects you all the time. Like, you're always self-conscious about it. You're trying to hide your smile. And every time you laugh, you react back against your own laugh because you know your teeth have been exposed. You're never able to stop thinking about it. And earlier that morning, Pete had preached at our sister church in another part of the city. And so he then added, and look, to be totally honest, I said this exact same thing in the gathering across town earlier this morning, and no one responded to it at all. So it might just be something weird I ate last night. But I feel led to say it again, so I'm going for it again. If that's you, I think God wants to meet you today with his love. And I'd love to pray for you. And this guy comes streaming down the center aisle of the church. And what we later found out is that he said to Pete, I attended the service earlier this morning. I knew when you shared that word, it was for me. I didn't have the courage to respond, but I couldn't shake it after I left the service. So I made this deal with God. I'll ride the subway all the way across town. And if he says it again, I'll go this time. That's a true story. And he's just standing there weeping at God's individual pursuit of him. He's numbered every hair in your head. That's the biblical rumor. The Holy Spirit pours that into his heart and makes it a reality. That's not the end of the story. Natasha came up for prayer during response to that exact same word. Now, Natasha is one of my very closest friends as a pastor, particularly when someone is deeply moved in response. If I have a close personal friendship with them, sometimes I feel like I should give them a bit of space and not suffocate this moment in their life. But for some reason, at this moment, I felt so led to go and pray with Natasha that I just climbed across the stage while the band was playing the response to get to her on the other side of the room. And through tears, she said to me, Tyler, I came today to determine to finally tell you that I'm out. I'm done with all the church stuff. I don't really believe any of this anymore, and I just want out of this. But if that's who God is, if he's powerful enough to speak the cosmos into being, but he's personal enough to talk to someone about something as simple and small as self-consciousness around their smile, if that's who God is, then I want to know him. And through tears, she articulated that to God and she continued to articulate that desire to God. Six months later, she was in like a personal season of revival that had all been fueled by prayer. 12 months later, she was heading up the storefront prayer room that we were opening in the heart of New York for our entire church. But the story's still not over. Earlier this year, Uh, A woman approached me at one of our worship gatherings. She worked in the medical field and was in Portland uh, all the way from Florida for a medical conference. And she handed me this letter and said that she listens to our podcast. And she was visibly emotional while she handed me the letter. Uh, Several days later, I opened it and I read the letter, which explained that she had begun listening to our podcast in the fall of 2021 because a friend of hers had recommended that she listen to this one sermon about prophecy. So she took a walk in the park near her house and she listened and in that sermon, I told this story, the teeth one. I only have a certain amount of material. I've only lived one life. (laughs) Sometimes the best plan is just to run it back and hope no one notices. So I told this story and it really connected with her because she's been really successful and accomplished but her whole life she's had in her estimation very bad teeth. And that's been a source of huge self-consciousness and social anxiety for her. It's been caused for medical intervention and even surgery, but she's always tried to keep herself from smiling. Like the exact articulation was her exact experience. So she's on a walk in the park and God is meeting her in such a personal way that she's weeping alone in this park in a moment of encounter with God that like she's never had before, all because of shame related to her teeth. Incredible. And because she didn't just hear a sermon, but was met by God, these weekly walks then become a part of her routine. 
and she just begins to take a walk in the park the same time and the same day of every week and listen to the Bridgetown podcast, and she's consistently encountered by God in powerful ways on these walks. This goes on for an entire year, and then something around 12 months later, she's on another one of those walks of encounter in that same park, and she's listening to a sermon. This one's on the topic of prayer. It's me talking about this daily prayer rhythm thing and a call to live unceasing in a life of prayer, and I tell this story about my high school self falling in love with Jesus in prayer on these daily walks through Philippi Park. And I showed you this picture and I talked about how it's on my nightstand and, and how my wife gave it to me for our 10 year anniversary. And it's so precious to me because it was here on walks in this park that I encountered God's love in a personal way. And she falls apart because it's that park that she's walking in. A mile from her house, met by God like she's never been. So let's just trace the story back to its root, shall we? Pete's at a church in New York City and he's got this nagging itch to share a prophetic word that is completely random and unattached to his teaching in any way. And he's gonna share it a second time despite the fact that he face planted sharing that very word earlier this morning. And Pete's willingness to risk becomes one man's moment of a profound encounter with the love of Jesus. And just by being in the room when the prophetic ministry was given to someone else, my friend Natasha comes alive to a God that she was ready to walk away from. And then years afterward, because I only have a few stories worth telling, a, a woman is brought to her knees in encounter with a God who is meeting her in her personal life, not just as personal as her teeth, but as personal as the place that she is setting her feet as she's walking to encounter him. That is the power of prophetic prayer. It reveals Jesus. Jesus in the self-consciousness around my smile. Jesus in the doubt that makes me want to walk away. Jesus in the park that I've been walking for the last year. Jesus. You see, prophecy means extraordinary breakthrough, and prophecy means embarrassing, awkward moments of failure. It means people getting it wrong. It means the mess of new life. To borrow a phrase, it is messy in the nursery, but neat and tidy in the graveyard. And the question of prophetic ministry, the question it confronts us with is, what do you want? The mess of hearing God's voice in a maturing community that is founded on love, or fam familiarity that's comfortable, but stops somewhere short of the common experience in the New Testament that we're reading from. And I believe that prophetic ministry is one of the ways that we can say together, give us the, the nursery.